I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Welcome, everybody. I'd like our keynote address to be interactive, and we do have a microphone that Jeremy can take around. So if at any point you have a comment or a question that you'd like to make, just raise your hand, and he will bring the microphone to where you are. Beyond that, I would like this talk to be not so much a talk about conscious living and conscious dying, but a living experience of us becoming more conscious, because in a very direct way, each moment is preparation for dying. This moment is preparation for dying. We could look at that sort of morbidly, but at the same time, could that be a fact that awakens us to be more loving, more present with each other moment to moment. As Jeremy mentioned, I'm the director of something called the Living Dying Project in the Bay Area of California. And I train volunteers to go into five counties and offer what we call spiritual support to people with life-threatening illnesses who want spiritual support. Maybe some of you have read Stephen Levine's books about spiritual support for dying. And it really has been my experience that very seldom is somebody ready to just 
need spiritual support. Very often, people need emotional support. Some of our clients are people who are Christians, some are Buddhists, some are Hindus, some are Jews, some are agnostics, and you could probably come up with a lot of other categories too. We try to meet people exactly where they are. At the same time, to train the volunteers in such a way that caregiving is spiritual work on yourself. That I'm not just there to help you, but I'm there to work on any place where I cannot be conscious. In Buddhism, they have what are called four mind-turning truths that turn your mind toward wanting to wake up. The first of these mind-turning truths is that you are going to die, but you don't know when. Now, could there be anything more intellectually obvious than that? I don't think there could be. But if we really knew that, if we really didn't know that we were getting out of this lecture alive, that you were getting to the first breakout session, or getting to lunch, or getting home today, how would that change the way that we were interacting here in the room together? How would it change the way that you were able to open to these words, open to me, open to yourself, be with the qualities that are arising in your mind and your body that make it difficult to be fully present? Walt Whitman said, sometimes touching another human being is almost more than I can bear. You've had that experience, I've had that experience, but so seldom do we have that experience. Very often when people are dying, what they're talking about is, have they loved enough? What is it that has blocked their ability to love? And no matter what religious tradition somebody comes in, people are interested in healing. I've been doing this work, as Jeremy pointed out, for almost four decades now. And at first I thought, I'm going to help people die. That's, that's, my, that's my job in life. That's my passion. I'm going to help people die well and consciously. And the more I've done this work, the more I've come to the conclusion that it's not about dying, that it's about healing. We all want to heal, that we all want to be more alive right now. And I remember once I was getting on an airplane to go to New York City to teach a meditation workshop. And a businessman came, he sat down next to me on the airplane. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to New York to teach a meditation workshop. And he said, oh, isn't that interesting? And that was the end of our conversation. And about a month later, I was getting on an airplane to go to Seattle to teach a workshop about conscious dying. A very similar gentleman came and sat down next to me and he said, why are you going to Seattle? I said, I'm going to Seattle to teach a workshop about conscious dying. And he said, what a remarkable coincidence. My mother just died. And we started talking and he was crying on the airplane. But the point of the story is that I pretty much say the same thing, whether I'm going to the meditation workshop or whether I'm going to the dying workshop. Because the good news is that really, there aren't too many special techniques or attitudes or talents that we need to learn in order to die well. Exactly the same qualities of awareness, compassion, generosity, kindness, devotion 
that help us be more awake and alive in this room right now are the qualities that will help us die well. If I get a phone call from somebody who seems pretty grumpy and the doctor just told them that there's a pretty good chance they're going to be dying soon and they want to learn about spirituality in the last two months of their life, I'm thinking to myself, well, good luck. Because it's very difficult to begin to work on the places that block our hearts when all of a sudden we're going to doctor's appointments all the time, maybe we have drugs in our bloodstream, and all these other things are going on. The message here is can we begin now? And by now I mean now. I mean right in this moment, what is it that keeps us from being awake in that way that that uh, Walt Whitman quote, sometimes touching another human being is more than I can bear. Now I would bet that everybody in the room almost everybody in the room, probably everybody in the room. It is Montana, so I don't know. But anyway, everybody in the room has had that experience of looking at another person and loving them so much it brought tears to your eyes. How many people have had the experience of looking in the mirror and loving that person so much it brought tears to your eyes? Just as a show of hands, one out of, what, 102, two, two people admit it, okay. Two out of 150 people, so that it's easier to see beauty out there than it is in ourselves. And until we can love ourselves, it's going to be difficult to die fully and consciously. A lot of the Eastern meditative traditions that I go around the country teaching and talking about begin with talking about compassion for the suffering other person, loving kindness for the other person, because these practices were developed a few thousand years ago by Asian people who did not have iPhones. They walked around barefoot and they loved their mommy and their daddy. How many people in the room are people like that? Probably not too many. So it was assumed that before we begin, the spiritual process, this transformation, transformative process of letting go of identification with the part of us that's going to die and beginning to identify with that which does not die, that we really loved ourselves. The Dalai Lama in his third visit to America said, now I'm beginning to understand and it makes me very sad. You Americans don't like yourselves. Another time I was at a Tibetan Buddhist meditation event and the teacher said, okay, we all need to open our hearts, so could everybody think of your mother? And he said, oh, wait a minute, this is America. Thinking of your mother doesn't mean that your heart is going to open. Think about that. Where he came from, thinking about your mother meant that your heart was going to be open. We look around the room and we see older, younger, bigger, smaller, male, female, more hair, less hair. We look inside, and in one moment you're hearing a sound, and the next moment you're thinking a thought, and the next moment there's a pain in your back, and then there's a pain in your knee, and then there's an emotion. So in that dimension where things are always changing, we will die. Is there another dimension? Is there another way we could look around the room? Is there another way we can look inside of ourselves at our own experience and see that which does not die.
I'm obviously suggesting the answer to that question is yes. That there is a way to, through contemplative practice, through raising triplets, through being out in nature a lot, you don't have to be a meditator. And in fact, I think that the, even the notion of meditation is a little bit dangerous because people think that was a good meditation or I'm a bad meditator, I should meditate more. And all these ideas are really bringing us away from who we already are. So if we look really very deeply at what Christianity says, at what Buddhism says, at what all the world's true religions say, they're saying that we are whole. The kingdom of heaven is within us. That we are Christ consciousness, we are Buddha nature, but we are caught up in what is separate. These religions, even the Christian religion before the Roman church got a hold of it and changed things a long, long time ago, had the sense that dying was a profound spiritual opportunity. And it's such a profound spiritual opportunity because we're being forced to let go of one of the biggest problems, our identification with our body, that my body's over here and your body's over there. Okay, so that as we're dying, maybe we're beginning to have the opportunity to see that there's something in me that doesn't die that is much larger than my body. So I'm not here to say some woo-woo California thing. And I, I not only come from California, I come from Marin County, okay? And I not only come from Marin County, I come from Fairfax, California. And if you knew Marin County, you'd know what that meant, okay? It's the center of the universe in some people's minds, maybe not yours. So I'm not saying that we aren't the body, that we're just living spirit, that we're really both at the same time, and that this practice of conscious living and conscious dying, and particularly conscious dying, is learning how to find that balance between being with the human drama, often tragedy that is unfolding, but not forgetting the spiritual context from which it is arising. I can do either one of these things really great. The trick is doing both at the same time. I got an email Thursday night right after I got here from a very, very dear friend of mine who told me that her cancer had just come back. She got the results of a blood test. Her ovarian cancer had returned and that she was devastated and probably didn't have that long to live. Now, in the West, me as a caregiver, her as a, a friend and a client in a certain way, very often we get fixated in the human dimension and get caught up in, oh my God, what's going to happen? Is there also a spiritual dimension? So that in Buddhism, and bear with me on this one, Cancer does not cause suffering. Resistance to cancer causes suffering. And yes, for most people in most circumstances, if you or a loved one or someone you're caring for gets a cancer diagnosis, there will be suffering. But if we ascribe the suffering 
to cancer, it's going to be much harder to deal with the suffering than really beginning to see exactly it's arising because of this resistance. So suffering arises. There are three ways to deal with it. The first way is to push it away. I don't want to feel this. And the story from my life is that two and a half years ago, my baby brother David was diagnosed with metastatic pancreatic cancer. He died on Halloween. His diagnosis was given to him by his Kaiser oncologist in an after-hours email. At 7 p.m., he got an email saying, you have metastatic pancreatic cancer. We're putting you in palliative care, Dr. So-and-so. The doctor was incredibly busy. And when you hear the story, you probably feel compassion for my brother. How many feel compassion for the doctor who was not trained in working with that kind of suffering? And every time he had to tell someone who was not that old and had two relatively young children at the time that they were dying, it was very hard for him. So suffering is caused by resistance. The doctor was suffering, and he, he unconsciously began to learn, if I push this away, maybe I don't have to feel it so much. And then he started pushing away his wife and his children and himself. And we all know people like that, and we all are people like that, where we push away suffering in parts of our lives. The second way to deal with suffering, if, if it arises, when it arises, is we get lost in it. An emotion arises, a mind-body state arises, and we become completely identified with what it is that we're feeling. I am angry. I'm scared. I'm happy. In English, we say, I am angry. In Spanish, we say, I have anger. In Tibetan, we say, anger is here. Just that the way our language relates to emotions goes a long way in hardwiring the way we get identified with emotions. Something like anger, for instance, often happens so quickly that it's difficult not to get really caught in it. Now, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a slogan that I find incredibly useful. It's, it, it sounds kind of strange at first, but once again, just bear with it for a few seconds. And the slogan is, drive all blames into oneself. And what we're saying here is not that you're blaming yourself, but that as soon as you're blaming what's going on out there for how you're feeling, that healing and conscious living and conscious dying become impossible. That if you're saying, I'm angry because this guy is driving in a big, huge pickup truck at 70 miles an hour, 10 feet behind my car on the freeway, and it's his fault, and I'm in the right and he's in the wrong, or I'm feeling this way because of the recent election or because of the weather or because of the way my partner has been, been acting today and recently, then you're not taking responsibility for how it is that you are feeling. And I was suggesting before that each moment is an opportunity for awakening. Instead of getting lost in the emotion, getting lost in what we're feeling, 
we're realizing that we don't need to blame out there. Blaming isn't really helping us be present. It's not allowing us to love ourselves or other people. And it's giving us an opportunity that if we're really on top of things we can be grateful for, even though it's not always pleasant, to be with something that has been blocking our heart and giving us a chance to find a deeper place in our hearts so the next time we're not blaming or the next time somebody we're close to is having a hard time or we are, we'll be more able to do the healing process. What is the healing process? So to me, I've put together a healing paradigm for training people to be with our dying clients or in your own spiritual practice. The first step along the way is motivation. You have to be motivated in order to do this work because again and again, this work is going to be very confrontational. You'd rather have a beer than look at your own arrogance. There's somebody nodding over there. <laughs> You'd rather have a glass of wine rather than look at your own narcissism. Somebody nodding over there. Okay, and on and on we go. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Looking at who we are moment to moment at times is not always pleasant. So the question arises, would you rather be free and be looking at the truth or would you rather be happy? Happy and free don't always go together, right? If you want to be happy, then every event that's arising you're having to juggle. Is this one that's happy making or is it not happy making? And you're kind of living a life of juggling rather than being there and saying, I want to be with the truth of this moment no matter what it is. Luckily, there is a third way of working with suffering. Not pushing it away, not getting lost in it, but compassion. Compassion is the ability to have your heart open in relationship to suffering. Compassion literally means with passion. It is the work of a warrior. It is a daring practice to be able to be with our suffering or the suffering of another person in an ongoing way. So we're talking about our healing path, our spiritual path, and to me, compassion is the central place on the path. But to get to compassion, we need to first be motivated. We have to want to be present. We have to want to look at what it is that's going on. And after we have that motivation, then there's the second stage that comes before compassion, and that's awareness or mindfulness. Mindfulness is a very hot topic these days. There's mindfulness in relationships and in politics and in just about every, everything you can think of. Mindfulness, you can't have compassion for something if you're not really there with what it is you're experiencing. Mindfulness is trusting in the mind that all you need to do is be present. You don't, you don't need to be manipulating things, you don't need to be fixing things, you don't need to be understanding things. The Bible talks about the peace that passes understanding. We live in a society that promotes excitement, addiction, let's get more stuff, which is interesting, it's fun, 
these things we're talking about today are in a very real way going against the grain of what our society is promoting many times. So it takes strong motivation. It often also takes being in a supportive group, being in a spiritual group or going to church or being in a meditation group. In the body, this sense of trust that we can just be present comes from being grounded and being centered. I mentioned before about these Asian people a few thousand years ago that developed these practices. They were grounded and centered. So that when you read these books about meditation or yoga, they almost never talk about the fact that before you begin to dissolve into the heart, become Mr. or Ms. Compassion, before you uh, open up and dissolve into the, you need to get grounded and centered because it's assumed that you are that already. Now, I would guess that here in Montana where people spend maybe more time in nature and the roads aren't as busy as where I come from, that people tend to be more grounded and centered. Grounding is this quality, this energetic quality of being present in your body so that you're feeling a sense of nourishment and support in a moment-to-moment -moment way. And a small child, this is the first lesson that she learns in the first couple years of her life, that she's dependent on the mother image, she's being taken care of. To the extent that you had an enlightened mother, you are a completely grounded person. A friend of mine who's a therapist has the saying that if it's not one thing, it's your mother. <laughs> How much do you trust being grounded? How much do you trust that you are being supported? Can we be grounded when it is challenging? Can my friend be grounded? Can I be grounded when she writes me and says, I'm devastated, my ovarian cancer has come back? At the age of two then, this grounding process moves on to being centered, the place from which martial arts are done feeling independent, I can do what needs to be done, being this strong person who can uh, be in the world. So that the second stage of healing after motivation, invocation, trust, being present, grounding and centering in the body or being aware in the mind. And to the extent we can do those, then we can move on to compassion. Compassion is challenging because it means opening our hearts to that which feels really uncomfortable. The compassionate heart has certain defining qualities. One of them is it's a connected heart. Can I be connected with my friend who tells me that her cancer has just come back? So that it's not compassion for her, it's compassion with her. Am I willing to be with her in her suffering, not standing back and I'm going to beam compassion toward you because you've had this thing and I'm, I'm uh, a thousand miles away here, however far it is, and I'm, I'm sending you compassion, but I'm not feeling too much. I'm just doing this pseudo-spiritual thing and shooting compassion at you. No, can I be with her in her suffering, feel what I imagine that she is feeling? I can't know exactly what she's feeling, but I can feel it to a certain extent. 
and be with that in my body and then open my heart to that. Another quality of compassion is the quality of spaciousness. In fact, your heart is boundless. It's empty of self, of clinging to self. Compassion can be spelled in two different ways. The first way compassion can be spelled is with a lowercase c, something that I'm going to cultivate. It's like going to the gym. I'm going to try to work with being more compassionate. My friend Ramdas would have, I'd come to his place and he'd have an altar and there'd be Jesus and Buddha and Maharaji and Hanuman and George Bush. <laughs> right? I one time was giving a talk to the Northern California Psychiatric Association. and It was in a hospital theater seating room. There were psychiatrists as far as you could see, if you could imagine being in that circumstance. It's kind of difficult, I know. Anyway, at this point, George Bush was president and John Ashcroft was the attorney general. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember John Ashcroft. He draped the naked statue of justice in the Justice Department because he was ashamed of, about the nakedness of the statue. Anyway, I said to these psychiatrists, until you can have compassion for John Ashcroft, you can't have compassion for your clients. And half of them got it and the other half started yelling at me. <laughs> they, they could not understand how that this person who was in their mind a hurtful person, somebody who was harming the country, was somebody that they should have compassion for, even could. Compassion is really not necessarily about fixing the other person so much as being able to have your heart remain open when you think about John Ashcroft or George Bush or Hillary Clinton, whatever, whatever side of the aisle you have to be, happen to be living on. Can you keep your heart open? Can you not be at the mercy of the environment? Before we were talking about awareness and being grounded and centered, that is the foundation that allows us to keep our heart open so that we don't need the environment to be supportive to keep our heart open. So that, yeah, your heart can be open if you're with a baby or you're with a dog or you're with somebody you really love a lot or you're out a perfect day in nature or you've just had uh, this perfect meal with this great music playing in the background. But can you keep your heart open when you're feeling a little bit sick and you're late for a meeting and the traffic is bad and somebody just cuts you off? And all those things are happening at the same time. Not so easy. But if you're grounded and centered, if you're really aware of the feelings that are arising because you're not feeling well and you're late and somebody just cut you off, then you can keep just resting in the heart. Imagine that your heart is as vast as the sky. And imagine that we were having this meeting in a room that had windows. It's kind of hard, but just we could imagine that. We looked out a window and what we saw was the blue sky. Perfect blue sky with no clouds. That sky is your heart-mind. And the sky is boundless, but because we think we're finite beings, because we're partly caught in where we're separate, we put a window frame around the part of the sky that we're looking at. 
And a cloud then comes into that chunk of sky that is you. A cloud of anger, a cloud of happiness, a cloud of judgment. And if the window frame is small enough and the cloud is big enough, what do we see? We see gray. And we say, I'm angry, I'm judgmental, I'm happy. Can we, through these practices, through being with dying people, through raising our families, through whatever it is we're doing, can we expand the window frame more and more? And as the window frame gets bigger, that same size cloud comes, and then what do we see? We see a cloud in the context of a blue background. And the cloud is moving. It's going to be gone soon. Are you the cloud or are you the sky? The Tibetan teacher Pema Chodron says, you are the sky, everything else is just the weather. Okay, so we're often identified with the weather. The sky never changes. The sky is always there. If you've ever been in a plane, I mean, probably everybody's been in a plane, but if you've ever been high enough up in an airplane, it can be raining, it can be snowing, it can be cloudy. You get up above the, the weather, it's perfect. It's just, it's just space, it's openness. And what these traditions say, the kingdom of heaven is within you, or what, I'm not gonna go through quotes from each tradition, but that we are that wholeness, we are that openness. And that dying, is dying into that which we are already right now. That enlightenment and spiritual freedom are not something that we accumulate or create. It's our nature already. I said that compassion could be spelled in two ways. The other way it can be spelled is with a capital C. It's not something we do, it's who we are. It is our nature. When the obscurations begin to fall away, what remains is a compassionate being. If you are open in a moment, how can you see someone else suffering and not feel compassion? Compassion is not necessarily being nice and kind. Sometimes it means being tough. I mean, if you're somebody who feels you want to be politically active, being compassionate right now doesn't mean just sitting in your bedroom feeling compassion. It might mean that you're protesting, uh, gun control, which probably, I don't know how popular that is in Montana, but <laughs> that got a laugh, that's okay. So <laughs> am I getting in trouble yet, Arlene? <laughs> I am getting in trouble? Okay. <laughs> so one of my first spiritual teachers said, that until one comes in intimate contact with death, your spiritual practice will have the quality of you being a dilettante. And by that he meant that you can meditate, you can pray, you can do all these things, but unless you know in your bones that you're gonna die, I'm gonna die but I don't know when, until you really know that, you can get a little calmer, you can fluff up your personality structure a little bit, but you won't really be getting to the heart of the matter, which I believe is what I'm supposed to be talking about. That's the name of this talk. The heart of the matter is knowing we're going to die and taking that information, that truth, and using it to awaken, to each moment be wanting to be as present as we can. Gandhi's autobiography was entitled 
My Experiments with Truth. What a wonderful title. He went through all kinds of things. He lived in South Africa in the early part of his life and was discriminated against as a person of color in South Africa. And then, of course, there was the whole thing with the British when he went back to India. And he was politically active and he had all kinds of complicated things happening. But he saw them each as an experiment with what is the truth of the moment. And for those of you who have seen the movie of his life, which was called Gandhi, of course, the way he died was he was walking through a crowd to give a speech, a, speech, a political speech. And out of the crowd, unexpectedly stepped a man, came right up to him and pumped two or three bullets right into his chest. And as he was falling over, he said, Ram, Ram, Ram. Ram is one of the names of God in India. So as he was dying, he was saying God's name. Now one would guess that probably when John Kennedy got the top of his head blown off, that he was not saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, or Mother saying the Lord's Prayer, that he was saying, oh my God, what was that? Or maybe having a few curse words thrown in there. But the reason Gandhi was able to do that was that he was saying Ram, Ram, Ram all the time. Eating breakfast was his relationship with God, and getting up in the morning, and, and talking to people, and getting shot in the chest. It takes a very strong practice to not get ungrounded and uncentered and uh, really thrown out of your seat, if you will, by getting a few bullets in the chest. So here's my friend once again who gets an email and maybe that she has a return of her cancer. Maybe having cancer is not the worst way to die because maybe it gives one an opportunity to start looking very clearly at what is, what is it that you really want in your life. My first meditation teacher, Suzuki Roshi, said, the most important thing is finding the most important thing. What is the most important thing for you? What is the most important thing? And whether you're 8 or 18 or 80 or 90 or however old you are, we all have a most important thing. At the same time, how much or how, how little of your life is being motivated by that most important thing? How often do we get sidetracked by the conditioning, by ego structure, by character structure in ways that make it a little harder to be fully awake and a little harder to eventually die well. So we have another quarter of an hour. I can talk for days. I, I do that. And yet I would like to give you guys a chance to ask questions or make comments. There's Jeremy in the pink tie in the back. I'll break the ice. Okay. I can speak loud enough. Uh, a quote in a Christian magazine, everybody's read Bread of Life or Daily Bread. Life is 90% what happens to you. I'm, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% your attitude toward that 10%. And I think that goes along with kind of what you're saying. It sure does. 
10% is life, 90% is your attitude toward that 10%. That's in the Daily Bread, a Christian magazine. <laughs> well, I mean, fortunately, what Christ said and what Buddha said and what Muhammad said and what I'm saying, agree. My brother was a Lutheran minister. I was raised as a Danish Lutheran. I don't know if you can imagine that the combination of having a PhD in mathematics and being Danish Lutheran, what that did to me, what I had to overcome in life, but here I am. <laughs> okay, anybody else? People are broadcasting their compassion towards me, as you mentioned, you know, it's going out, it's right. going towards me. I there's see. A, there's an impact when I, when I, I can kind of feel it coming by the look on their face, is um, I suddenly feel lonely. Okay. I'm a little bit pissed off. Right. And Get it. it's sort of like, why won't you be with me? And I don't know what to do with that. I mean, sometimes I just feel like, just shut up and look at me. Okay. So. I hear what you're saying. I was at a workshop that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross taught. And a young woman came up, told her story. She was about 30. She had three young children. She was a nurse, and she was dying of metastatic breast cancer. She told the story in a very poignant way. People were weeping. And at the end, Elizabeth said, how does her story make you feel? She had a blackboard. This is back in the days of blackboards. And one person said sad, and another person said angry. And Elizabeth wrote down all of those adjectives. And at the end, she asked the woman, the nurse, how does it make you feel that this is the way people respond to your story? And she said, I feel lonely. There are things that look like compassion that aren't compassion. I mentioned before that compassion had the quality of connectedness. And I would guess that these people who are broadcasting compassion to you, just the language of it, doesn't sound very connected. It sounds like they have some sense of pity. So that pity and compassion outwardly can look alike, but they're coming from a very different place. The Dalai Lama said that one quality of compassion is the ability to equalize and switch yourself with another person. So if somebody's saying, oh, I'm feeling sorry for you because you have this difficulty, whatever your unnamed situation is, and I'm going to beam what I'm pretending is compassion toward you, I can see why you would feel pissed off and lonely. It takes a foundation and then a good, strong, open heart to again and again open up to another person's suffering. And what I would suggest that you might do when people are responding to you in this way is to have compassion for the part in you that's feeling lonely. Have compassion for the part of you that's feeling pissed off. So that here these people are giving you this wonderful opportunity, unwittingly, to go deeper into your own heart. You're using their unconsciousness as an opportunity to find a deeper place in you. And we all have that opportunity again and again. You started saying that the, in Buddhism there are four minor truths, and the first one is you avoid to die, but you don't want to win. What are the other three? <laughs> yeah. I know I forgot something. Okay. Okay. So there are these called the four mind-turning truths. They turn your mind toward the Dharma. They turn your mind toward seeking the truth. 
The first one is you are going to die, but you don't know when. So these truths are not something that are intellectual truths. They're contemplations. You might take one of them, and I will repeat the other three in just a moment. You might take one of them and let it kind of float around in the back of your mind for a month or two. You wake up in the middle of the night and, oh, right, I'm doing that contemplation. I'm going to die, but I don't know when. Or you wake up in the morning and you've got a busy day. How does the fact you don't know when you're going to die affect the way you're going to deal with today? The second one is that life is precious. This is a precious life. You've got a body that's strong enough to come to this room, a mind that's clear enough to understand what we're talking about, a heart that's open enough to be here in this way that we're here together. There's not a lot of people in the world who have this opportunity. A lot of people are living in situations where they're afraid their children are going to be hungry or where they're so busy trying to just survive that they don't get to spend Saturday afternoon, Saturday morning sitting around thinking about death and dying in some productive way. The third of those truths is that there is karma. Is it okay to say that here? That, that <laughs> what we do think or say has an effect. As ye sow, thus shall ye reap. So that if you're at home and you're all alone and you're having a judgmental thought, that has an effect in the world. It has an effect in your neurology. It, it creates, it's deepening a certain neural pathway of judgmentalism in you. And the fourth one is that suffering <coughs> arises when we act out of attachment, out of unconsciously grasping at what we want more of and is comfortable and rejecting that which we don't want. Run that one by again. The first one is we're all going to die, but no, we don't know when. I, I, I got it. I'm doing the whole thing again. We're all going to die, but we don't know when. Life is precious. There's karma. And there's the truth of suffering. The suffering arises when we act unconsciously out of attachment. So we talked before about this healing paradigm. And the very first part of it, after we're motivated, is becoming aware. Can one be aware of how suffering arises so that it is human nature to have preference? You woke up this morning and you decided, I want to put on the brown sweater instead of the blue one. And when you had breakfast, you decided you wanted to have coffee with or without or, you know, whatever. We, we have preferences. Okay, but suppose your preference is to have coffee with cream and you get up this morning and you go into the refrigerator and your wife used the last of the cream. And there's no cream and you really don't like coffee without cream. It's your preference to have the cream. What happens next? What happens in that moment? You say, well, okay, I got to go to the conference. There's not time to go to the store. I'm just going to drink the black coffee. Or, or do you start suffering? Is there an attachment? I'm somebody who needs to have cream in my coffee, damn it. You really are somebody who is unconsciously lost in this mind-body state of being angry about no cream in the refrigerator. So that, once again, you said it's 90% your attitude. Okay, so here's exactly this attitude. You either have a choice of 
It's not a choice that these things happen very quickly. When you see there's no cream, boom, it's in a split second that either attachment arises or it doesn't. And it takes a lot of training to notice how very quickly and unconsciously we get upset about things. So that I take it you're a Christian. And that suppose you go to prayer retreats and you go to church and you want to be closer to Christ in an ongoing way. And you really work with that in the sense that in that moment where you're getting angry, in that moment you're feeling separated from Christ. And the beloved, in my humble opinion, the beloved can only be everything. The beloved is the full cream pitcher and the empty one. So that when we start getting caught in emotions and separating ourselves from our own hearts, from our own connection with the sacred, from our own lives, then that causes suffering. Thank you. You're welcome. Whew. Okay. <laughs> the California Buddhist escaped. Okay, yes. <laughs> You spoke earlier on the importance of loving yourself and how and how important that is in helping other people and that compassion piece. And I guess I was just curious what your thoughts are on the idea of selflessness. Because I feel like to be in this line of work that most of us are in, you have to have a certain element of being selfless and stepping into areas that are uncomfortable and working through those to help somebody else. So I was curious what your thoughts are on that balance between loving yourself and that selflessness. Okay. Great question. The balance between uh, loving yourself and being selfless. And the way you described selfless, to me, was almost the definition of compassion. That you're willing to be there for another person. And I really don't think these two things are in any way contradictory. That, in fact, the more you love yourself, the more you have compassion for yourself, then the more compassion for others will arise naturally. Self is a very tricky word because there's also our true self. And that the more one opens your heart, that the self that you are, the Godhead that is within you, is revealed in a certain way, which is then a natural, it will be naturally expressing compassion for other people. There is a difference between loving yourself and clinging to separateness. And Clinging to separateness will create some suffering. Loving yourself will allow you to love others. So that in Buddhism, before when I was talking to this woman over here, I don't know your name, we said that pity is very closely related to compassion, but it's the enemy of compassion. Attachment is the near enemy of love. You can love yourself or you can be attached to, I'm separate, I'm good, I'm better than them. And that could look like love, or you could be attached to somebody else and it could look like love, but it's really coming from a contracted place in the heart. Remember we said that the, the qualities of the open heart are connectedness, warmth, and spaciousness. So that whether you're loving yourself or somebody else, whether you're having compassion for yourself or somebody else, you can be checking what does it feel like inside. We're almost done here. And I'd like to suggest homework. Here's the homework. You can take one of those four mind-turning truths, 
you remember what they are. And just contemplate one of those for a while. Not all day long, but just like a few times during the day, just bring that up. What does that mean to you? And then the second one is that there are these three qualities of the open heart. Can you take certain chunks of the day? Maybe you're having a conversation with somebody you love or you're in a group of people and you're putting, say, 75% of your attention on what does my heart feel like? Does it feel connected? Or maybe you choose, does it feel spacious? Does it feel warm? And 25% of your attention on what she's saying, what I'm saying, stop at the red light, don't make a fool out of yourself, but you're really bringing spiritual practice into a living experience with other human beings. Okay, question in the back. I wanted to comment that I've known several people who have kept died and come back, and the way all of them described it was a very different uh, manner of thinking than being here now, which I, I, when I first realized I was gonna die, I couldn't imagine how the universe could go on without me, but I realized it was going to. But, but the way they talked about uh, having gone to another place made me think very differently about not being here, which is um, uh, somehow made me not worry about death or not 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 uh, accept the fact that I don't really understand it, but that's okay because it's whatever it is. It's the other mm -hmm. that we um, allude to, but um, I don't know if people, I assume people here have also known people who have gone and come back, but it's a, they all said um, they will never be afraid, that it was the most wonderful thing, and they know that there is something. And um, I just wanted to comment that it, it completely changed my way of thinking about um, death and dying, and about having lost treasures uh, in my life, who I may see again, I hope. In my understanding, the near-death experience is the first part of the dying process. There is a remarkable, a remarkably consistent degree of literature about near-death experiences where people have a overwhelmingly positive experience of going into, going up to a light, not merging in it fully because it's a near-death experience instead of a full-death experience, coming back into their body, becoming conscious, and saying, I've had the most remarkable experience. I'm no longer afraid of dying the way that I used to be and you don't need to be either. I would take from that that also that light that these people experience when they go into the near-death experience is fully present in you and in this room at this moment. It is not something we have to die or have a near-death experience in order to be with, to realize it is our true nature. As the Bible said, this is the third time I've said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. That quality of light, of love, of sacred presence is here all the time. And I choose to be around dying people not because I'm a saintly person and not because I'm a morbid person, but because I want to wake up. And by being around people who are dying or are close to death, it keeps reminding me of what you said there in the back of the room that we are that light and that the most important thing is not who the Giants get to play third base, but is me beginning to live in that light in a moment-to-moment -moment way. Thank you all very much.